Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 21, verse 19. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Back in verse 9, we saw that it was better to dwell in the corner of a rooftop than with this woman. And today, it's better to dwell in the wilderness. Better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and quick-tempered woman. The proverb is straightforward. Nobody likes their feet held to the fire. Nobody wants to be grated on or chafed against. Nobody wants the nagging, the browbeating, and the incessant strife that comes from a bitter or vindictive woman. And when you're dwelling with her, there's no getting out of it because there's no telling what might become a potential flashpoint. You'll find yourself walking on eggshells unless you get away. Obviously, this is no way to live. There's no peace or tranquility. Home should be a place where you rest and are refreshed, where your batteries get recharged. And God has designed the world so that home is the, the woman's domain. A wise woman builds her house, but a foolish woman tears it down. However, you'll notice that both of the women are in the house. They're in the home. And then the question becomes, if there's a problem, what do you do? How are you to turn things around? Well, first, women, be wise. Don't be foolish. Drop your pride and give your worries over to the Lord. Obey Him and trust Him to deliver you from your problems. Whatever obedience looks like, you can be sure that it does not look like contention and anger. Peter instructs women to submit to their own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, having their adornment being the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That passage means that even if you're right, even if you've been goaded into anger or contention, and your man is wrong, even if some do not obey the word, this is effective for the accomplishment of good, because submiss submission is obedience, and God will bless faithfulness. Men, you also need to drop your pride. You need to humble yourself and love her sacrificially. Love her like Jesus loved his bride. Die for her. Be extreme in your love, your provision, and your care for her. Honor and protect her. Give her good reason to trust and obey. 
And ultimately, you must exercise your faith on her behalf. We may not have the answer that is that she is looking for right at our fingertips. Because we're not God. But our God is faithful and just. And you need to teach her to trust Him by doing so yourself. Teach her to obey Him by showing her how. And your actions speak louder than your words. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess. Silas and Timothy and Luke traveled from Troy to Philippi and they started their ministry there. We saw that. They brought the gospel to Lydia and she convinced them to stay with her. This was Paul's second missionary journey and he's in new territory. He's made it to Macedonia in northern Greece. The account of this ministry in Philippi here in Acts chapter 16 makes a comparison. As the gospel makes headway onto the continent of Europe, it comes into contact with two women, two very different sorts of women. The first woman we met last week, she is Lydia, the seller of purple, the Gentile God-fearer. She'd gone down to the river to pray, and the Lord opened her heart, and she opened her home to the apostles. And today's text introduces us to the second woman in the comparison. She's a Gentile also, but instead of a wealthy business owner, she's a slave. Instead of a God-fearer who goes down to the river to pray to God with, with the Jews, She's possessed of a demon. So her slavery was both actual and spiritual. Verses 16 to 17. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So the text tells us that she had a spirit of divination. The Greek text says that she had the spirit of a python. This means that her demon, her gift, was probably connected to the worship of Apollo, the Greek god of sunlight, prophecy, music, and poetry. In Greek and Roman mythology, Apollo had slain a mythical serpent, a python, and his body was in the ground, buried in the ground at Pytho, which is a place near in Greece near the town of Delphi. You may have heard of the, the, the oracle at Delphi. It's the most famous oracle in the ancient world. And the priestess of Apollo, who was called the Pythia, named after the python, she would sit in the temple of Apollo on a tripod, and there were fumes which would come out of a crack in the rock, supposedly from the de decomposing serpent, and she would basically go into a trance and make prophecies 
And, the, and Greeks would come and pay for her to give them adv- direction or advice. Similarly to, similarly to how the slave girl's masters were profiting from her. And she would give advice on things as basic as when to plant the crops or things as momentous as if this nation should go to war against that nation. Notice that the girl here in our text, the slave girl, was not lying. She was speaking the absolute truth. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. This is much like the demons who Jesus encountered during his ministry. They all knew who he was. They all proclaimed who he is, who he was. I know who you are, Jesus, Son of God, the Messiah. But Jesus silenced them and cast them out. Which, as it turns out, is exactly what Paul does. Verse 18. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So Paul is running around, running around, he's, he's walking around Philippi for days, preaching the gospel. And there's this slave girl who's a, a prophetess, a priestess, of, of a, has a spirit of divination and prophecy. And she's proclaiming, these men are the servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she's, run, she's following them around everywhere they go, proclaiming this. And Paul gets annoyed. He, he, he gets distressed about it. He's, he's like, I've had enough. He turns around, he rebukes the spirit, and he casts him out. And God gives Paul the power to do so. And the girl had spoken truth, and the fact that Paul was able to cast out her spirit of divination was proof that what she had spoken was true. Paul was the servant of the Most High God, and the Most High God was entirely capable of removing whatever spirit or power that she had. But doing this is where Paul gets into trouble with the Gentiles. Verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. If you want to get somebody's attention, take a whack at their pocketbook. The girls' masters are angry with Paul, and they drag them to the magistrates. Verses 20 and 21. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Now, what had Paul and Silas done? They hadn't disturbed the city. They had cast out a demon. They had directly affected these men's profit. They weren't breaking Roman law. But those are the charges that they're brought, brought forward on. And they don't have much basis in fact. But mobs aren't known for their logic. Verses 22 to 24. 
Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the fact that they weren't given a trial... The fact that these charges weren't verified. Society loves a scapegoat. They love to just blame somebody else for their problems and carry out their will with them. But now we have our comparison here between the two women and the, and the, and, and, and the effect of the gospel of, of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. We have these two women. Both of them heed the things spoken by Paul. The gospel works on both of their hearts. Lydia, the Lord opened her heart, and she receives grace. The slave girl, she receives relief from the oppression of this demon. Paul rebukes the demon. The demon's gone. Both incidents result in hospitality, though of very different sorts. Lydia begs them to stay with her and offers them gracious kindness. The magistrates insist that they stay with them, putting them up for the night, and they treat them despicably. The gospel always creates tension, and in response to it, we can and we have two choices. We can yield to it, as Lydia did, or we can oppose it, as the slave masters do. And with Lydia, we've already seen the life that it brings, but we haven't finished the story of what happens as a result of the slave girl's exorcism yet. And we'll see, we'll, what we're going to see is that the gospel overcomes all obstacles as we read the story of the Philippian jailer. God richly vindicates his ambassadors. God has sent Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke on a mission. They've gone. They proclaimed the gospel. They, they have, they have a, a church forming in Philippi. Their, their power over this false spirit is, 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 is demonstrated, is, is, is clearly seen. And now they encounter their first direct opposition from Gentile people. Up till now, it's always been through the Jews, or at the accusation of the Jews, or the Jews stirring up the, the crowd or the mobs. Now, it's, this is the first time we see what happens when they have a problem, where it's the Gentiles who are stirring up the crowd, the Gentiles who are offended. And it's money, of course, that drives them there. But, but we see, though, that when the gospel encounters this conflict, it still brings Life. God richly vindicates Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. Verses 25 to 28. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loose. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself 
no harm, for we are all here. The first thing that I have to get your attention on is, here's the grace and patience which Paul and Silas exhibit in this trial. They have been submitting to God's word. They, 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 they submit to the call to go on this trip. They, they uh, Remember last week Paul had a vision in Troas? The man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. So they submit to this vision. They, they come, they follow the calling. They've done nothing wrong. Their accusers incited a riot and then accused them for it. They work up the crowd and say, these men are the ones who are being rabble-rousers. The charges are vague, to say the least. And they've been horribly misused, abused, and thrown into the deepest dungeon. Their feet are locked in stocks. They can't even move their legs. And their response is grace and patience. They, these are men of faith. These are men in a very dark place. And what do they do? They pray and they sing hymns to God in the middle of the night, at midnight, no less. And they keep on believing. Their faith is strong and they use this as an opportunity to minister to the other prisoners who were listening to them, the text tells us. What must these prisoners have thought? Who are these crazy guys? They're beaten, they're thrown into the deepest prison, and... They're singing and praying, rejoicing in God. And the next thing that I have to draw your attention to is, is that God miraculously intervenes. There's an earthquake. The chains fall off and the doors are opened. This becomes the occasion for escape. Paul and Silas are set free. But wait, they don't escape. That's what the jailer thought was going to happen. It's what normal people would think would happen when the prison doors, when the, 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 the chains fall off, the doors open. You, you, you would think the prisoners would say, whoopee, and take off. But they don't. They don't escape. That's not the occasion of escape for Paul and Silas. It's the occasion of escape for the Philippian jailer. The reason the jailer was going to commit suicide was that it was Roman law that jailers would suffer the same punishment that their escaped convicts were condemned to. Roman law was that if you were a jailer in your prison and you lost a prisoner, you would suffer the consequences that they were found guilty of and that they were awaiting. Suicide would have been far easier than the potential torture and eventual death that would have awaited him if the prisoners had escaped from the jail. But God is showing this jailer that he's the one who needs to escape. He's the one who's locked up in a prison. And so we see what he does. Verses... 29 to 34. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. 
And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. This story is all about who is really free and who is really in chains. Paul and Silas are free, even in chains. And the jailer is desperately in need of deliverance, despite the fact that he holds the key to the prison. Despite the fact that he is free. But the glory of the gospel is that freedom is free and available to everyone. All you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. There's nothing stopping this Philippian jailer from shaking off his chains and stepping out of this prison that he's been living in. Because God has sent an earthquake to deliver him. And the result is blessed and joyful fellowship, along with continued proclamation of the gospel. God doesn't leave the apostles to rot in the jail. Instead, he calls their abusers to account as he sends Paul and Silas on their way. Verses 35 and 36. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates are sent to you to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. Now the text doesn't tell us why the magistrates have this sudden change of heart. We don't know why they suddenly send to have Paul and Silas released from the jail. Perhaps the proclamations of of this priestess, the, the python girl, combined with the miraculous earthquake, maybe that was what changed their heart. Maybe it was the fact that they had the ability to sleep on it for a night and they reconsidered how ridiculous the charges were against them because the mob wasn't there anymore, pushing them or inciting this violence. But we don't know. And regardless, the magistrates decide to set them free. In many ways, this is very similar to what happened to Peter and John when the Sanhedrin brought them up on trumped-up charges. It wasn't Peter and John who were on trial. It was the Sanhedrin. Remember Peter's words? When, when he's accused by the Sanhedrin, and, and, and he says, wait a second, you tell me what is right. Is it better for me to obey men or God? Because what you're telling me to do is directly contrary to what God told me to do. And he says, I'm not going to do that. That's foolishness. God is in control. And so it's the Sanhedrin who is brought on trial there. And similarly, here it's not Paul and Silas who are on trial. They're vindicated. God, they're singing hymns and praying. Their jailer is asking them for for release. Their jailer realizes that he's the one in the prison. 
Even in the pagan courts, God comes out on top, and Paul is smart. He recognizes that there's an opportunity here to display and vindicate the power of the gospel. Verses 37 to 39. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them, and brought them out, and asked them to depart from the city. These high and mighty Romans in this Roman colony, the magistrates, no less, bear witness to Paul and Silas's innocence. And with their tails between their legs, they come and plead with them. They beg them, knowing that they're the ones who've been caught with the pants down. They're the ones who have overstepped the line. They're the ones who have broken the law. Romans were very serious about carrying out their law. And this Roman colony, we talked about it last, last week, they were independent of the region and the state that they lived in, but they answered to Rome for the way they governed. And one of the primary laws in Roman culture was, you do not beat an uncondemned Roman. You get a fair trial if you're a Roman. And that's not what Paul and Silas got. So these magistrates recognize their own peril and essentially are begging for mercy from Paul and Silas, asking them to leave. Because they are guilty of the charges that they falsely abused Paul and Silas for. They're the ones who had troubled the city. They had performed acts not lawful for Romans to do. And as magistrates, their job was to enforce Roman justice but one of the very clear dictates of that was to defend this, this, their own citizens, and they had failed. And in their, in their hastiness, they failed miserably. But we see that Paul and Silas show grace. They, they acquiesce, verse 40. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul and Silas used this opportunity to strengthen the new church in Philippi, and they departed to continue their mission in Europe, in Macedonia. And then there are several points of application to be drawn from this text. There's a lot of ways to go here, and I want to bring out, well, several of them. The first is that, what are we to do with truth on the lips of liars? Why, why does Paul rebuke the spirit in the slave girl? What was wrong with the fortune teller calling out the absolute truth, proclaiming before them so that everybody who heard and would know they're the servants of the Almighty God, and they are preaching the way of salvation? What's wrong with that? Why did Paul get annoyed and cast out the demon? Was it... Wasn't it a vindication of him and his message? Here she was, a priestess, 
You know, a, a fortune teller, somebody who, who people would pay to get her opinion, and they're getting free proclamation, free advertising. And moreover, when Paul turns and rebukes this spirit, it's not taking the easy way out. That's the instigation of all of his troubles. That's what causes him all this suffering, beating, thrown in jail. Well, there's three principles I want us to consider here. The first is this. The enemy of my enemy is not my friend. The enemy of my enemy is not my friend. A co-belligerent is not equal a brother. So, in this instance, the enemy that both Paul and this slave girl were fighting would be false, false understanding, the lack of truth. They're, they were both going out and proclaiming the gospel. They were both going out and proclaiming the way of salvation. Paul was saying, Jesus died for your sins, and she was saying, listen to him. They're both engaged in the same battle. But the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. We should never confuse this issue. A false teacher remains an enemy even when he gets it right. It's not a good thing to accept the praise of any and all at face value. Hearts matter. The second principle here is that the message of the slave girl, while literally and exact and literally true, was certainly capable of being misconstrued. Gentiles would have no qualm, or this wouldn't be new language, the Most High God or the way of salvation. That's not new language to them. They would have thought that the Most High God would have been a reference to Zeus, and the way of salvation would simply be another way to add to their pantheon of gods. They, they, this was part of their religion, part of their rhetoric. This is, But Paul's saying, no, this is something new and something different. This abolishes all of that. And that brings us to the third principle, is that Paul's going to declare the truth, and what the truth is, is love. That's the third principle. It's love. Paul was annoyed, but his act was an act of love. Because he was an ambassador of the one true God, his action was a deliverance for this girl from an oppressing spirit. He loved her. He proclaimed the truth. He, he vindicated her message, what she was saying. I mean, he proved that he was a servant of the Most High God in his victory over this false demon. He proclaimed truth, and that is love. Even though that meant the loss of income and value of the girl to her owners, and presumably it, it, it may have damaged her, her meal ticket. I mean, she was probably treated pretty well by her owners because she was the golden goose, or the, the, the goose that laid the golden egg. He took away that ability, and she's probably not going to be treated quite as well. But he loved her, and he, re, he, he released her from that bondage. 
And keeping these principles in mind, for us, that means we need to be wise in how we deal with those who seem to be saying what we are saying or affirming what we are saying. We may not simply ignore that a co-belligerent is completely denying the gospel in other ways, in fundamental ways, if they are. We, we, we can't stop speaking truth because it's convenient for us when we encounter falsehood mixed with it. Satan loves to mix the truth in with lies because it makes the lies a lot harder to pinpoint and to recognize. But the truth is the truth. The gospel is the dividing line. Jesus is Lord and hearts matter. The truth on the lips of liars is a lie. You just got to watch for where it's going to come out. But when you stand up for the gospel, it sometimes means a rough road ahead, which brings me to the second point of application. Violence at the hands of unbelievers. The gospel brings division. The gospel is a fire. Jesus came to set the earth on fire. And those who are confronted by it or who suffer from it mentally and emotionally, like Paul did when he, when he first encountered the gospel, so frustrated, so angry at it. So he attacked the church. He was an unbeliever. Violence at his hands. Kills Stephen. Goes, goes to Damascus to, kill, to, to drag the Christians to the courts. Like these slave owners that attacked them financially. The gospel cut into their, their, their pocketbooks. So they react violently. They drag them before the magistrates, spewing false accusations. Or like the Pharisees. Jesus, Jesus and his gospel confronted their spiritually, them spiritually. He, he called them out for what they were, which was false prophets and false teachers, people who were trying to use the law for their own benefit. And they murdered him. Those who are confronted by the gospel don't like it. And they are not shy about persecuting those who bring it to them. Especially when it steps on their toes. Now notice in our text that this doesn't deter the apostles one little bit. And neither should we be afraid to proclaim the whole counsel of God. If the, if the Bible is true, if the Bible is right, and if God calls us to be His witnesses about what the Bible says about all things in every area of life, we can't water it down. It's true, it's right, and it's our duty to witness what it says. This doesn't mean that we need to go out picking fights. The slave girl followed Paul around for several days before he intervened. We don't need to go... I mean, the, if we're going to stand up for the truth, the fight's going to come to us. Well, that's not... Jesus didn't go picking a fight. He just proclaimed the truth where he was, and the fight came to him. They bribed Judas, and Judas betrayed him. But, so we don't go out picking a fight, but when the fight 
comes, we don't back down. We proclaim the truth. The fight will come. Jesus promises that faithfulness, obedience to Him will bring persecution and suffering. But we don't need to be afraid of that. If we are faithful, and if we live the gospel boldly and honorably, it's only a matter of time before it leads to some persecution. And that may be from a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, an employer. It might even be from civil authorities, like what Paul has here. But when the, the fight comes, we should not back down. Because our God is in heaven, and He is Lord over heaven and earth, and He has all power, and He will vindicate His witnesses. We should not back down from the power of God, or fudge on the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. And that will give us the fortitude, trusting in the gospel, to attain to my third point of application, and that is faith and hope in dark times. Like Paul and Silas, we should ooze with gratitude and praise. It should be as evident as ever in our prison cells. Hopefully figurative ones. Yeah, hopefully you don't get thrown in. I don't want you to be thrown in jail. That's not what I want. But if you're going to suffer, if you're going to be in, a, in, in places of, in, of hard times, when you're going to encounter uh, emotional or spiritual or physical distress, whether it's sickness or oppression, whether it's difficulty at work, you should ooze with gratitude and praise to God because you're just passing through. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials and suffering for the sake of the gospel, knowing that God is in control and you are being perfected. And you're a pilgrim. You're just passing through, and your final destination is a given. You've been set free from that burden and weight of death and damnation that rests on the entire world. And when you put this in perspective, everybody who's not in Jesus Christ is in prison. You have every reason to rejoice. You don't know what the outcome will be. You don't know what God's purpose for you is here in this trial. But you do know that God's put you there. And you do know that God works all things for your good. And so take advantage of the opportunities God puts right in front of your nose. Minister to the prisoners. This is the best witness you can give. Peter tells us to be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. Well, why on earth would you have to give an account for the hope that is in you unless the hope is evident in times of true suffering and difficulty? Why on earth would anybody wonder why you're hopeful if everything's going along swimmingly? No, it's when you're suffering. It's when you're in the midst of trials and tribulation. It's when you're down and out. It's when your luck is hard. That's when you turn to God in faith and you trust Him and you exhibit that hope and you exhibit that faith and the gospel is proclaimed. And that's the fourth point of application. This kind of living, true, grateful, 
faith and hope. Bold, clear proclamation of truth. Willingness to suffer for it. And faith and hope in suffering. That kind of living results in grace. Unmerited favor. And ultimately, the spreading of the gospel. There's no shame in taking... Oh, I'm sorry. The Philippian jailer gets saved. What more glorious thing is that than that? What more joyful or cause for celebration than the fellowship with a newly won brother in the Lord, someone who will be with you for all eternity because you risked temporal, temporal suffering, the temporal suffering of rejection. You weren't afraid to follow God where he calls you to, to bear your cross, and God gives you the fruit of the salvation of a new, a new saint. And then the last point of application is this. Be wise. Wise as serpents. There's nothing evil in using the laws of the land to your benefit. Don't break the law. Submit to the, the governing authorities. But there's nothing wrong in using the law of the land to your profit. Paul certainly was willing to use his position as a Roman to further the gospel. There's no shame in taking advantage of all the tools God has given you for the carrying out of God's call on your life. Use what you have for the glory of God. Because you and everything you have belong to Him anyway. It's not yours. You're just a steward. Use your freedom to preach truth. Use your nationality. If you have, a, if you have an in with, with Dutch people or with Greeks, use that for the, the, the work of the gospel. With the Norwegians or Hispanics, whatever. Use that for God's glory. Use your location, where you're at. God says, love me and love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Well, where are you? Now start looking around you. Use your location for the glory of God. Use your money, your wealth, your job, your family, your car, your house, your health, your time. Use it all for God's work. Because only what's done for Him will last. And if you do this, you will know God's presence. You'll know His peace. You'll know His encouragement, and you'll be His witness. You'll be faithful. You'll be in His fellowship forever. You'll earn that prize because you strove for the goal, like Paul tells us to. In glory, you will hear what all of us one day hope to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And how sweet is that? What more could we possibly ask for than approval from our God. But that's what the promise of the gospel is. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let us pray. This morning we saw the gospel conflict directly with the pagan system. And God vindicated Paul and
and Silas with power. He shook the ground and he released them from their physical chains so that he might proclaim the gospel, that they might proclaim the gospel and release the Gentile jailer from his spiritual chains. Paul and Silas are Jews, but they proclaim the way of salvation. And salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is the fulfillment of the needs of all mankind. God has come down to us and redeemed us from our sin. The barrier is removed. The path to fellowship and grace is open to all. Come, eat and drink. Receive the free grace of God. Repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household shall be saved. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.